Welcome back everyone to season three of Under the Hood. This is a space for aspiring current or retired STEM students and professionals where we talk about the behind the scenes, the firsthand accounts about the careers of people in your life or people that you know that may have chosen to dedicate their career to STEM. And I am elated, I'm honored to kick off season three with Professor Rachel Morello Frosch. So just to introduce our esteemed guest today, Professor Morello Frosch is an expert in environmental health sciences and community health sciences in the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Over the past 20 years, her research has examined social determinants of environmental health among diverse communities with a focus on inequality, psychosocial stress, and how these factors interact with environmental chemical exposures to produce health inequalities. Much of her work has examined this environmental justice question in the context of climate change, ambient air pollution, exposures to environmental chemicals, and effects on fetal growth and developmental outcomes. Oftentimes, she uses community-based participatory research methods for data collection. In collaboration with communities and scientists, Professor Morello Frosch has also developed science policy tools for assessing the cumulative impacts of chemical and non-chemical stressors to improve regulatory decision-making and advance environmental justice. And lastly, Professor Morello Frosch has received numerous, a number of awards for her distinguished teaching and research. And most recently, she was inducted into the National Academy of Medicine for her leadership in the application of community-engaged data science. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So excited about our upcoming conversation. I am elated. And for those of you that have not had a chance to engage with uh, Rachel's work, she is absolutely a titan in, in her field. She is an incredible mentor for students and faculty across Berkeley's campus. And if you wanna to get to know more of her research, feel free to click the link in the description box um, and explore the She Lab. So let's jump right into part one of our discussion, which is getting to know you, your education and career journey. And so the first question is, so how did your childhood or adolescent experiences influence your decision to attend Berkeley? for your studies for developmental studies and epidemiology and environmental health sciences? Yeah, well, I can start off by saying that it was not a straight path. I was not one of these folks that knew what they wanted to do when they grew up. I'm an only child. I'm the daughter of immigrants. My mother is from Argentina and I'm a dual citizen of that country. And my father was a Jewish refugee from Austria. And by then, by World War II, Germany had annexed Austria. So they left in 39. And my parents met uh, in the U.S. in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I was born. And so my mother, uh, as an as an Argentinian, uh, was leaving also for political reasons, uh, not in the quite desperate way that my father left his country. So my parents were very social justice oriented, very uh, progressive family. And I grew up surrounded by uh, their friends, many of whom were um, activists themselves. My, my mother was a 
professor at UC Santa Cruz, or she was at Ohio State and then at, at UC Santa Cruz in Latin American literature. My father was an industrial designer. And so a lot of social justice work was being done by particularly my, my mother as a professor at a time when her country was undergoing a lot of turmoil uh, during the um, dictatorship of the 1980s, during the Dirty War, in which you know 30,000 people were disappeared and killed um, as a result of their political beliefs. And she spent a lot of time trying to get friends, journalists, others uh, out of the country. So I kind of grew up sort of surrounded by that. So when I got to college, I, I mean, I really wanted to go to a public school. I wanted to go to a school that had sort of a tradition of a lot of opportunities to do get engaged in political work, particularly around Chicano and Latino politics and work. And so, you know, Berkeley seemed like a great place to go. And that's kind of how I ended up there. It was away from home, uh, but not necessarily too far from home. I was very interested in like international political economy of Latin America, just because I had a very strong connection, particularly to Argentina. We used to go back all the time, very often, every year, sometimes for over a month, my family. So I, I just had a deep interest in, you know, the sort of structural determinants of why, what was going on in that region of the world, why it was so tumultuous and, you know, politically challenging. That's how I started doing development studies. I was interested in political science, economics, those kinds of things. And then I was very much of a student activist uh, during that time. And then when I graduated, I was kind of tired of school. I got a job that I was very unqualified for, uh, working as a development and policy advocate at a civil rights organization in San Francisco known as Equal Rights Advocates. And they did policy advocacy and uh, litigation around civil rights issues, but particularly around the intersection of civil rights, sex discrimination law, and immigration law. And they were launching a woman of color project, which is uh, what I was hired to help work on. And I thought I was going to go, you know, work for this organization, learn a lot, and uh, be, uh, go back to law school and become a civil rights attorney. That was that's what I was thinking, and I. I ended up staying uh, there for about three and a half years because, because I was unqualified for the job. There was a lot to learn, and it was really interesting for a long time. They were working on cases to desegregate the San Francisco Fire Department, for example, in collaboration with civil rights groups like Asian Law Caucus, Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, Lawyers Committee for Urban Affairs. They were desegregating the U.S. Forest Service. And they were doing it, it was, you know, on the behalf of women and different diverse communities of color that had been traditionally shut out from these public sector, well-paying, you know, awesome jobs. I learned a lot about policy, but also this, the, the power of litigation, but also its limitations. You know, they would win these major landmark class action lawsuits with consent decrees and then, you know, spend the next two decades enforcing those consent decrees. Because those institutions, they may lose a lawsuit, but that doesn't mean they're just going to be like, okay, we're, you know, we're going to desegregate tomorrow, as we all know, uh, that th that doesn't happen without major struggle. So I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. I started getting interested in um, medicine. I had taken science classes because I just liked science and math in general, even though I didn't major in it. And so I started working as an interpreter at the San Francisco General Hospital ER emergency room and medical clinic and 
uh, taking some remaining science courses required to thinking about applying to med school, which was awesome. I saw also in my regular job at Equal Rights Advocates, the intersections between the clients that were walking into the door, farm workers and other workers who were undocumented in the United States, who were working in workplaces where they experienced, you know, wage and hour violations, sex discrimination, sexual assault. And at that time, the United States had passed its last major immigration reform law in 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. And that was the law that makes it illegal for employers to employ people who are undocumented in the United States. So every time you get a new job, you have to fill out your little form attesting that you are in this country illegally and you are legally allowed to work as a result of that law. And at that time, it was an open question about whether or not undocumented workers would have any standing to bring lawsuits or to protect themselves in the workplace. You know, would a, wouldn't a, if a person who is working illegally or the, and the employer hires them illegally and they're experiencing wage theft or sex discrimination or civil rights violations, do they have standing in court to enforce their civil rights laws? That was an open question. Luckily, it got resolved in the right way. The courts made the right decision and basically said, no, regardless of whether or not you were uh, undocumented, if you are employed, you have standing to enforce your rights in the workplace. Otherwise, we're going to have a bifurcated workplace, and that's going to be bad for all workers. So I started to think about the intersectionality of these different kinds of forms of discrimination, and then many of those workers also experienced a lot of environmental health threats, occupational health threats, and significant health problems. And that's what got me interested in medical school initially. Um, so while I was taking some science classes, I went, applied to Berkeley to get an MPH in the, in the process, uh, just thinking, you know, if I'm going to take science classes, I might as well get a master's out of it. And I started to fall in love with public health and started to think that Maybe medical school wouldn't be that intellectually stimulating, even though I, I would love to do clinical work. And I fell in love with research and then um, uh, continued on at, at UC Berkeley to get a PhD in environmental health sciences. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. <laughs> Definitely not a big plan. It kind of just happened little by little. Wow, wow, wow. I have not heard the full story, but... This is where brilliance is made of. This is where innovation is made, unfortunately, by experiencing some really uncomfortable yeah. and seeing uncomfortable things. Yeah. And if you hadn't had that combination of life experiences, as we'll talk about in the next questions, this is really where the start of Professor Rachel Morello Frosch begins. And so let's jump into the next question. Um, and so you told us about the evolution of how you started your environmental health sciences research journey. Can you please tell us about the social currents when you got your PhD and you were transitioning into facultyhood and what your experience was doing research on racially determined health inequities and how it was received at the time by your research community? So when I started graduate school, I actually started, after I finished my MPH and started my PhD program, 
I saw environmental health science as a potential way to pursue science, which I was really excited about, but hadn't pursued before because it just seemed like there wasn't enough context. There wasn't a clear way to make it meaningful or to, or to benefit communities that I cared about. There just, there didn't seem to be a clear pathway for that for me, at least when I was an undergrad at Berkeley. And so when I, by the time I had been out in the world and come back to grad school and I had been in public health, that's where I started to feel like, okay, I think I can figure out how to do this. And I just need to find uh, the right people who will mentor me. They, they may not know what I'm trying to do, but they would like support me. It was also at a time when environmental justice organizing was, had already, you know, uh, Warren County had already happened, but uh, a lot of e environmental justice organizing was really taking off in California. So the fight over Kettleman City was really uh, taking um, taking off. And there were even a couple of students um, who were not environmental health scientists themselves, but were very involved in those campaigns around uh, Kettleman City for the communities that were dealing with uh, waste management corporation there. And so there was some awareness about environmental justice, but it was still kind of considered sort of marginal, like movement, not really sciencey kind of thing. Um, but again, there was, you know, there were some emerging studies on that topic, but it was clear there, there, there needed to be a lot more. And so that's where I really started to get inspired and see an opportunity to develop a research project that was environmentally justice oriented. And then I had an opportunity to become, EPA had launched a really great intern program that was very targeted at diversifying the pipeline of scientists uh, that go into the field. And I was able to be an intern there in Washington, D.C. And the people that I interned for are still my collaborators. So Tracy Woodruff and um, Daniel Axelrad and um, the boss of the um, of that place, at, uh, of that office at EPA uh, was an economist named Alma Gartland, who I think was interested in these in these issues, although he wasn't in, firmly ensconced in environmental justice per se at that time. So that gave me access to great data that I could develop a research project on. So that was a huge opportunity. Those, those internship opportunities that come your way where you can get access to data that to really develop a great project and not necessarily have to collect it your, all yourself is really, really beneficial and can be allow you to ask more scoping questions than if you were sort of focusing on one place and spending years and years collecting data, which is a very good thing to do, but you have to ask different questions if you're collecting data that way. I was lucky to have a committee for the most part. There was some conflict on my committee, um, but that was supported. They didn't know exactly what the heck it was that I was trying to do, but they were very supportive, provided a lot of good scientific feedback. And I was able to I was able to get my PhD and also be independently funded. So I was able to get fellowships. So I didn't necessarily have to work a lot on, I worked on other people's projects, but was able to be more selective about what projects I worked on, which was great. So then when I finished, I postdoced. And again, like having some of that freedom and independence to continue pursuing your ideas, develop new projects, publish papers from your dissertation, start networking with uh, new mentors. 
So I was very interested in getting more trained in social science methods. So I did a post an NSF postdoc uh, with a sociologist at UC Santa Cruz. And then I did a UC president's postdoctoral fellowship at, in the energy and resources group. And then I got a job <laughs> at San Francisco State University, which was in their community health department there in health and human services. And I taught epidemiology. I had to teach environmental health sciences. And they had a master, an MPH program. It was a general MPH program. And they also, uh, the nursing program uh, took public health courses. And that was a great job for me because it taught me how to be a great teacher. You have amazingly smart students, many of whom are going to school full-time and working full-time. And so you have to give them a damn good reason to come to class every day. And if you're not teaching well, they're not going to come. I was there for two years, um, and then I had an opportunity. Um, a sociologist at Brown um, recruited me to come out there, and I got an appointment at the School of Public Health and the Center for Environmental Studies at Brown University, where I was for five years. And then I had an opportunity to come to Berkeley. I was recruited by the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management and the School of Public Health. So that's my journey. Wow. So what I'm gathering from that is that you are extremely flexible in taking new opportunities. Yeah. Part of that was uh, I had to be flexible when I got, when I entered my PhD program, because I started my PhD program and I started chemotherapy treatments for breast cancer in the same month. So um, that was very unexpected. And um I was 28 years old and I literally, I was like getting ready to start grad school and I got this diagnosis. It really came from like left field, but I decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to grad school. Like, what am I going to do? Just like sit around and worry and I'm going to try my best. And, um, I was very fortunate. I was working on a project at the time and people, you know, I kind of walked in the room and decided I wasn't going to meet with everybody individually. I was just going to like, you know, everyone goes around the table. How are you doing? Have a little check-in. So I'm like, well, I kind of had a, you know, I had a shitty day today and I just found out I have breast cancer and I'm going to have surgery and chemotherapy. And so I'm going to keep working on this project, but you have to know that like, I, I have no idea what to expect. And it was like all men. And they were like, but I just didn't know how to like deliver the news. So I just figured I'd just kind of like plop this, like, pile of shit in the middle of the table and we would just, you know, deal with it. So that was a, that was a journey, but the, the silver lining of that was it put graduate school in perspective, very much put it in perspective because like that first, that first year, my goal was to show up that like, if I could just go to class and like do the work. It didn't have to be perfect. That was gonna be that that would be awesome. And it made me a flexible person. Like it made me not be a perfectionist. It and I and it and I ended up meeting other students who were also dealing with other forms of chronic disease, you know, because you used to, it's kind of funny. It's like it, there's like a little 
network like people don't talk about it but then when people find out about you they seek you out and so i there's like there was a whole network of students who had other kind of chronic health issues who were working through grad school so there you know there was a nice support network and i think in the long term it it helped me keep grad school in perspective and it made me more willing to take risks and try things that i might not have other uh, tried because I would have been worried about, you know, what people thought or if the, my professors would have liked it. And, you know, when you're kind of in that situation, you don't care as much about what people think. <laughs> you just kind of want to do what you want to do. Um, and then the other thing is the cancer card is like, you can let, you know, you leverage that you're like, you know, don't mess with me, man. I have cancer. I'm just going to do this. First of all, thank you, Rachel, for sharing such an incredible story of resilience and just overcoming incredible odds. There are people that listen to this channel that are going through some horrendous things, and we just look to you as an inspiration, someone that can just overcome the odds. <laughs> well, a lot of it, uh, I'm, you know, a lot of it is luck, too. I mean, right? When it gets found, whether that you have health insurance. I mean, I was fortunate, you know, as a student, it's always very scary when you get diagnosed because you're, well, now things have gotten better, but, you know, insurance is kind of, was a dicey thing back then. We had some health insurance, but yeah. So yes, you beat the odds, but a lot of it's luck and resources. And if only resources were equitable, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so thank you again. And so with that, I'm going to ask, you've had such an illustrious research career that has been built on just years and years of perseverance and innovative thinking. So to date, what do you think are some of your most surprising or significant findings that have come out of your, your lab? Well, if you look at some of the early stuff that I did on segregation, that was looking at the extent to which, you know, segregation drives racial disparities in exposures to different hazards, whether that's poor air quality or noise or green space. We looked at that a while back, like when I was, I, we started doing that work when I was at State and at Brown, and then it really started to take off like a lot of people. You started to see more of a mashup of environmental health science and social epi kind of doing more, more mashup work. And now there's just a proliferation of amazing researchers who've really taken a lot of this environmental justice research and methods to completely new levels. And some of those scholars, you know, I've had the pleasure of mentoring either as grad students and postdocs and many of them their colleagues and they're just doing incredible work so that's like super gratifying just to see the proliferation of this work the other thing that i've really gotten interested in and as a result of that segregation work is if you think about it, it's not that surprising that more segregated places you have more disparities in whatever it is that you're looking at sometimes my relatives say you get grant money to do that like everybody knows that why why would you get money <laughs> you know which you can't blame them right and I like to say like I do get grant money sometimes to study things that 
communities already know, uh, which is a little weird. On the other hand, data is an important part of the policy equation. It never drives the outcome, but is often an, an important part of that strategy to to for social change. The other thing I've gotten interested in is not whether segregation leads to disparities or who bears the burden, which is a very important question, but the to what extent does do more unequal communities or societies or states have worse environmental quality for everybody? So in other words, you can live in a very segregated city and obviously you will see, not surprisingly, that communities of color and the poor have worse air quality than their white wealthier counterparts within that city. But the other thing that we've seen in our research is that white people in a segregated city may be better off than their counterparts who are residents of color in the same city. But those white people are much worse off than their white counterparts that live in less segregated cities. Because air overall air quality in less segregated cities is not as bad. So I think that connection between uh, the, the equity and environmental quality nexus is something that like economists have been talking about for a really long time, the sort of how wealth and income inequality degrades overall economic health for everybody. But I think in the field of environmental health, there's a lot more work to be done. And I think that the end result of that can have a lot of policy significance because it becomes clear that addressing social inequality in itself can potentially be also beneficial to the environment. That I think can be a very powerful argument about the overall social benefits of policies that uh, seek to uh, address environmental and social inequality. So for example, people particularly in the social sciences say that uh, sometimes we can think of social policy as, for example, climate justice policy. An example that has been given by a colleague of mine at UC Santa Cruz, uh, Mijin Cha, says that when the Affordable Care Act passed under the Obama administration, in many ways, it was also a policy that advanced kind of a Green New Deal sort of strategy, which is to disconnect people's insurance from their employers, making it easier for people who are maybe employed in fossil fuel industries to change jobs and not necessarily have to forego health insurance because you have access to Obamacare's subsidized health insurance. It makes that transition, it's a policy that makes that potential transition a little bit easier. It doesn't alleviate the pain necessarily, but it can reduce at least one major pain point for people who are trying, in when we're trying to decarbonize our economy and make it easier for people to move away from fossil fuel intensive jobs to more renewable jobs. That's brilliant. So benefits for the most impacted communities in our country on the social front end up proliferating into climate justice strategies. Yeah. Right? And, and um, you know, a lot of, you know, now that we have this huge opportunity at the federal level in the Biden administration, we've had unprecedented investments in climate change policy that we haven't seen in a really long time. And, and that legislation is far from perfect, mm -hmm. but has a lot of promise. And the goal is to ensure that we're centering equity 
in climate change policy because without centering equity and sort of harmonizing uh, equity and uh, sustainability goals in our climate change policy, we're never going to get to where we need to be in terms of addressing the underlying problems that are th threatening planetary life, social life, uh, other things like that. Because A, communities of color are a huge constituency for climate change policy because they are disproportionately impacted by it in so many ways. I mean, we think about the migration crisis that's going on across the globe. Many of those refugees, many of whom are uh, coming to the United States, but are moving in uh, other places in the world, not exclusively, but climate change is a major driver for a lot of migration that's going on now globally. So those communities, and particularly in the US, if you polling data consistently shows, for example, that black people, as well as Latinx folks, followed by Asians and then white people, but particularly black and Latinx, the proportions of them are much more concerned and are much more willing to pay for policies that address climate change, pay in the way of like maybe slightly higher taxes or fees on certain things. Or So those are important things to consider when we're implementing climate change policy. I think it's something that the Biden administration has really sought to keep in mind. And I think it's one of the reasons why they have centered environmental justice, because in order to get elected, he had to reach out to those constituencies to, to get their support. And now he has to make good on his promises. Join us for part two of episode 14, Trailblazer with Professor Rachel Morello-Frosch.